Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Nature. Welcome to the Nature Podcast. This week we've got maps of tiny minds and stories from a 19th century eclipse. Plus, two fossils reveal what early mammals were up to in the shadow of the dinosaurs. This is The Nature Podcast for August 10th, 2017. I'm Sharmini Bandel. And I'm Adam Levy. There's a real skill to making a good map. And the more detailed the map, the harder it is to make. For example, a railway network in a city will likely have a lot of nodes and branches, but not too tricky. The road network is more intricate and might include winding streets and back alleys. Below the surface may be a sewer system, adding a whole extra level of complexity. Now, researchers are refining a very different kind of map. Brain maps. There's a long history of maps describing various chunks and regions of brains. But imagine how hard it would be to make a map that included every single neuron. Well, you don't have to imagine, because this week Nature is publishing a feature and a paper all about these neuroscientist cartographers. The paper is looking at the brains of fruit fly larvae. These maggots can show a couple of dozen different behaviours, simple enough to be studyable, but more than enough to make their minds interesting. I called up paper author Marta Zlatic, who's based at the Genelia Research Laboratory in Virginia, to find out why she's studying these tiny brains. So what's interesting about them is what's generally interesting about the brains of all animals. Um, They have to learn and make decisions about what to do when. But what's very special um, about the fruit fly larval brains is the fact that they have a very compact So uh, it is possible to actually visualize the structure of large portions of the brain. The fruit fly larva offers this unique opportunity to really uh, understand uh, how the structure of neural circuits relates to their function. And how, how simple actually are they? How simple is this brain? It's compact. 
I don't know how simple it is. I wouldn't say it's simple. It has very complex neural circuits <laughs> capable of uh, pretty complex behaviors. How good a map do we now have of the fruit fly larvae brain? So uh, bit by bit, we're slowly completing the entire nervous system. Now, how long will it be till we have the entire nervous system? I don't know. Um, It will be a few years, but, but not very many. Of course, the interesting thing about a map is that ideally, you could link that schematic to behaviors. What work have you been up to to do this? When we have the structural maps, then we can go in a targeted way and manipulate specific cell types and relate the activity to various defects in behavior or various, or we can manipulate decisions, uh, we can alter the way animals learn, we can induce memories, and so we can find out what roles specific circuit motifs in these maps uh, play uh, in in behavior and in decision-making or in learning and memory. So by tweaking the maggots' brains, you're able to find out how different circuits affect different behaviors and how the maggots actually learn things. So what's an example of a behavior that you've been studying? So for example, like all animals, uh, Drosophila larvae, they have different modes of locomotion in the same way that, you know, a horse can uh, walk, trot, or gallop. And uh, it has to select which of these to do at any given time point. And, and this selection occurs based on multiple sensory cues at once. And now we are looking at how memories are used to influence uh, the decision whether to crawl or to turn or to roll. So it's really about choice. That was Marta Zlatic. Her paper on fruit fly larvae brains is out in this week's Nature. But that's not all. There's also a feature all about these kinds of ambitious brain maps. We're now joined by the author of that feature, whose voice may be familiar to some listeners. It's former Nature Podcast co-host Kerry Smith. Welcome back to the studio, Kerry. Hi, Adam. Nice to be back. Kerry, how long has this work to extensively map out brains been underway? Well, it kind of depends which kinds of brain maps you mean, and uh, it sort of depends what resolution you're interested in. But these these ones that we're talking about in the feature this week are really, really precise. They're basically trying to capture every wire, every neuron, and every connection each neuron makes in a given brain or a speck of a brain. And it's really only in the last kind of, if I'm being generous, a decade that that's been possible because technically it's very difficult. And presumably researchers are interested in brains beyond just fruit fly maggots. People are trying to work on bits of more complex brains as well. The adult Drosophila has um, an order of magnitude more neurons than the larva, so that's um, that's what some people have chosen to work on. Then the next step up would be something like the zebrafish, um, which is a bit more like humans because it's, it's a vertebrate at least. And then people are also working on like little specks and kind of crumbs of the mouse brain, or they're trying to look, for example, at how many different cell types there might be in the mouse retina. What's the end goal of all this? Is it feasible that one day we could be applying this kind of thing to the human brain? Um, That seems 
remarkably difficult to imagine at the moment. But I think <laughs> particularly because these techniques are just really invasive, right? I mean, you've got to you've got to stimulate neurons with light and chop brains up, and that's not anything that we would like to be doing in the human brain. But even in this tiny little useless animal <laughs> with its 30 behaviours, you can still ask yourself this really fundamental question, how is the brain making behaviour? And how useful are these schematics for answering those questions? Do they give you the complete picture or are there aspects of the brain that you need to know about that a map just can't tell you? In all of this conversation, we haven't mentioned the fact that there's like layers of complication involving neurochemicals, involving all the little ion channels that open on cells to convey kind of signals from one place to another. Um, and none of that is really factored into these earlier models. So um, that could be, you know, that's going to keep people busy for a number of decades. That was Kerry Smith. Her feature is out now at nature.com forward slash news and make sure to check out Marta's paper at nature.com forward slash nature. Still to come in the news, genetically engineered salmon finally makes its way onto the dinner plate and a surprisingly simple intervention to lower the risk of premature births. Now though, northeastern China has proven to be a real goldmine for ancient vertebrate fossils. Paleontologists have dug up feathered dinosaurs, early bird relatives, amazing flying pterosaurs and, more recently, some unusual early mammal relatives. Today's mammals have flourished into a wide range of shapes and sizes, fitting them into a variety of ecological niches. They come in three basic groups, the placentals, that includes us, the marsupials and the monotremes. Monotremes are those peculiar egg-laying mammals like the duck-billed platypus. But during the Mesozoic, around the time of the dinosaurs, there was a completely different array of mammal-like animals. Many of them had lifestyles that appeared to be eerily similar to their modern relatives. Two new fossils from the Tejisan Formation of northeastern China are estimated to be around 160 million years old. They show just how varied the lifestyles of these primitive mammals were. Reporter Jeff Marsh spoke to paleontologist Zhu Shi Lo at the University of Chicago in the United States, who led the studies. So usually when I do these interviews, people are just calling me from their office, but you're actually in the sort of fossil preparation lab. Yes, very much so. And the reason I'm speaking to you today is because you've this week published two new early mammal fossil papers that date back to around 160 million years ago. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. We have named them as Myopatagium and Vilivolodon. Myopatagium means mother with the wings, and we can safely call that they are the first winged mammals. Vilivolodon means gliding tooth. And these are, to be very precise, extinct relatives to modern mammals although they are not modern mammals themselves. We'll discuss where they fit into the sort of mammalian family tree in a moment. But the first thing that struck me is that, you know, if we look today at the mammals, they're such a diverse group. And, you know, we've got swimming and flying and gliding, living under the ground in the trees. There was also a similarly astonishing diversity 160 million years ago. Yes, in the last 10 years or so, we have discovered many very different ecological adaptations in these early mammals. To put the present discoveries in this broader context, 
they have already developed a gliding adaptation, just like some of the modern mammals. So these two new mammal fossils that you're reporting this week, they were both gliders. They were like the sort of flying squirrels that we know today. Yes, exactly. They are preserved with this gliding membrane. They are also herbivorous mammals, and this is entirely consistent with what the modern mammalian gliders are. In all regards, except they did not have some of the critical modern mammal features, which excluded them from the modern mammalian group, but only placed them as near relatives to modern mammals. Now, there's lots of confusing terminology in paleontology with all the different group names, but there's one I think we should talk about, which is the Haramyids, which both these specimens fit into. Yes, and this Haramyids. Have already developed teeth specialized for herbivorous feeding since Triassic and early Jurassic, and essentially they are very effective in grinding plants. And I guess you probably have some idea about what kind of plants they would have been using those teeth to grind, because this is we're talking about a time now before flowering plants even evolved, aren't we? That's another very interesting aspect. In late Jurassic, flower plants have not yet become a dominant part of the plant world, but their plant-eating teeth are really good at grinding down very soft plant parts or some nutritious uh, plant parts, such as seeds or the seed-bearing parts of the plants. Whereas the modern Mammal gliders are associated with flower plants, as if this ecological association of gliding and herbivory happened twice in very different circumstances. Certain niches were dominated by dinosaurs, plesiosaurs, pterosaurs, but in all the gaps between those spaces, we mammals were allowed to diversify. Yeah, and we did a pretty good job with that as well. Have you got any idea about the reproductive biology of these animals? We can speculate to some extent, because the modern mammals have monotremes, and the monotremes are egg-laying mammals, and we can assume that before the rise of modern mammals, they probably. Just had the same egg-laying reproductive strategy. Gliding herbivorous egg layers that were less scared of dinosaurs than we once thought. That's absolutely true, and、uh, you really put it in a very good way. Do we know, you know, at the same time as these flying herbivores that you found, do we know what kind of mammal、uh, would have been the ancestor of all three modern groups of mammals today? I think probably some very small insectivores, but this does not preclude the extinct mammals to differentiate themselves into the spectacular array of diversities. That was paleontologist Zhu Shilo talking to Jeff Marsh. Find the paper in the usual place. This week, I learnt a new word: umbrophile. An umbrophile is a person who travels the world chasing solar eclipses, literally shadow lover. 
On the 21st of August, umbrophiles will gather in particular regions of the US. It's the first time a total eclipse has crossed the span of America in almost a century. Many umbrophiles are hooked on the majesty of the spectacle itself, but for some it's scientifically fascinating too. One shadow lover, David Barron, has written a book on one very special eclipse. It didn't take me long to discover that the best eclipse stories are not from today, but from the 19th century, because uh, the mid to late 19th century was a time when total eclipses were not just fascinating natural spectacles, but they were really important to science. David's book is about the eclipse of 1878, which was visible across America's Wild West, darkening skies from Montana to Texas via Wyoming. In a guest slot for this week's show, Scientific Americans podcast host Steve Mursky sat down with David to find out more. In the book, you talk about the three big scientific issues that research done during the very brief period of a total solar eclipse could help you figure out. One of the most important, probably one of the two most important, was trying to figure out what the sun is made of and what the corona, which today we know is the sun's outer atmosphere, what it was made of. Uh, And that's really what made total eclipses most important in that era was the advent of spectroscopes, which enabled scientists to actually look at the light coming off of heavenly bodies and look for fingerprints, look for what uh, what particular colors of the spectrum showed up in a spectroscope that would tell you what chemical elements were up there. But also very important was using the eclipse to look at what's right around the sun in the early, in the inner solar system. There was um, good reason to believe that Mercury was not the closest planet to the sun. Mercury did not behave quite the way it should based on Newtonian mechanics. And so astronomers assumed that there was another planet, maybe several planets, closer to the sun than Mer- than Mercury, which were tugging on that planet and uh, and causing its its orbit to be perturbed. And I should say the planet, the planet generally was referred to as Vulcan, Uh, for the Roman god of fire, because it was so close to the sun, it must have been a very hot place. And uh, it won't surprise anyone that, of course, we know in hindsight that there is no Vulcan, and they didn't find anything, but that wasn't clear at the time. Uh, And thirdly, any time you had a total eclipse, it was a chance to to update your equations of the moon's motion. So astronomers back then were actually very good at um, precisely identifying where in the skies various celestial objects were, and then would use math, would make calculations forecasting where those celestial objects would be in the future. And that included charts of where the moon could be found on any given night years in advance. The way you tell the story of the eclipse watching and uh, study for this 1878 eclipse, there's a whole cast of fascinating characters and we can't get into all of them but who did you find really interesting and what were they doing for the eclipse and why were they out there uh the first person who just sold me on this story was thomas edison 1878 that was the year he had just come out with the phonograph and as soon as he came back from wyoming he started work on a new invention and that was the incandescent lamp so wedged between his two most famous inventions, he has this several weeks when he goes out to the Wild West to see a total eclipse. 
Uh, and during that period, he was, first of all, he had invented a device for the eclipse called the tesimeter, which was an incredibly sensitive heat detector, essentially an infrared detector that he was going to use to study the solar corona to see if that mysterious aura around the eclipsed sun gave off heat as well as light. And uh, he, he, this tesimeter that he creates is, it really doesn't work very well at all, but in a way he does uh, anticipate infrared telescopes. That's correct. Right. In essence, what he had developed was an infrared telescope. It, that is when he attached his tesimeter to a telescope. And uh, it was a clunky device. I mean, at the time, there was one newspaper report that said that his tesimeter was going to be bigger than the phonograph. And obviously that never happened. But it's interesting that right after the eclipse, Edison was talking to the press about how he wanted to use his tesimeter for astronomy generally. And that was to attach it to a large telescope, and to look for objects in the heavens that you couldn't see with visible light, but you could detect their heat. And in essence, that was uh, the idea for infrared astronomy. So he's out there, and a whole bunch of other people are out there. Uh, We have to talk about Mariah Mitchell, because she's such a fascinating case. Mariah Mitchell, back in the 19th century, was by far the most famous female scientist in America. She had discovered a a comet uh, back in the 1840s. And in 1878, at a time when uh, there were all of these men who were assembling eclipse expeditions out to the West and receiving government support, and she was excluded, Mariah Mitchell decided to take it upon herself to put together an all-female expedition to Denver, uh, both as a scientific endeavor, but also as kind of a bit, bit of political theater to prove to an American public, a skeptical public, that women could be scientists. The two biggest things that maybe come out of the eclipse are Mariah Mitchell's exhibition, really, to the public about what women can do in science and the overall boosting. There's almost like a Sputnik effect Uh, you write about uh, how American science really started to rise up and match European science. The era is just so interesting because, I mean, this is, it's the Gilded Age in America, a time when America was getting rich. And in fact, America's reputation was that all we cared about was getting rich. But from an intellectual standpoint, America didn't get much respect. Uh, Europe was the clear center of Western culture. That's where most of the respectable literature and art and music came from. And Europe was the clear center of, of science in the world. But there was this small group of American scientists who were determined to show that we could take on Europe. And the eclipse of 1878 was exactly what they needed. It was a high-profile event that the whole American public could get involved with. So in that way, the eclipse of 1878, its importance goes beyond the science itself and more into its effect on American culture and American politics. That was author and umbrophile David Barron talking to Steve Mursky. You can listen to the longer version of that interview on Science Talk, Scientific American's weekly podcast. Find that at scientificamerican.com or on your favourite podcasting app. Time now for this week's news chat, and Richard Van Norden has popped down to the studio. Hi, Richard. Hi, Adam. So genetically engineered salmon have finally arrived on Canadian dinner plates. It's been a really long journey to get to this point, right? 
Yep, this is Aqua Bounty Technologies, a company in Massachusetts, and they announced in August that they've sold some of their genetically engineered salmon to customers in Canada for eating. Uh, you really wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a genetically engineered salmon and a normal salmon, uh, but they reach market size in about 18 months Normal salmon takes twice as long. And they weren't genetically engineered recently. This technology has actually existed for some time. It's quite astonishing when you think of all the fuss about gene editing and modern gene editing. This was first done 25 years ago, 1989. Scientists gave the salmon a growth hormone gene from another salmon and some regulatory elements from a third species. And this allows the salmon to produce a continuous low level of growth hormone. Uh, Aqua Bounty formed in the early 1990s, and it's then spent almost 25 years waiting uh, to be approved for consumption, which the US FDA did in November 2015 and Canadian authorities did six months later. But uh, it's Canada where the fish has been sold first for food. And that's because political battles in the US have stalled the salmon's entry into the marketplace. There's a law setting out the budget for 2017 and it includes a provision that tells the FDA to forbid the sale of transgenic salmon uh, until it's developed a program to tell customers that they're buying a genetically engineered product. Right now in Canada the salmon is not labelled as genetically engineered. And in America this is still very inflammatory and the senator who inserted this provision in this budget law has called the salmon fake fish. Uh, and activists are still demanding regulators to reconsider their decisions. And although people will have eaten genetically engineered food before in America and in Canada, this is the first genetically engineered animal that people might eat. Yep, the first time that a genetically engineered animal has been sold for food on the open market. So Aquabounty's chief executive, Ron Stottish, says the larger market is viewing it as a predictable and sustainable source of salmon, or so he hopes. 25 years, a quarter of a century to, to get to this point for just one species. Is there any expectation that other animals might arrive on dinner plates a little more efficiently and quickly? Well, someone's got to be first. So they've fought this battle, they've navigated all the regulatory systems and they've got some consumer acceptance and everyone else can just follow in their path. So yes, you would expect other genetically engineered animals for food to follow more quickly. If they had failed, um, it could have killed off the engineered livestock industry for a generation, says James West. He's a geneticist who co-founded Ag Genetics. So their attitude is sort of better late than never. Exactly. Let's move on to our second story, which is about premature birth, which to me seems like something with incredibly complex origins. But there's a new study which reveals there might actually be quite a simple factor that influences it. Yeah, this is an analysis of medical records from almost 3 million pregnant women in California. And it suggests that getting better sleep might help to address the issue of premature birth. How big a factor actually is sleep in influencing when a baby is born? Well, women who've been diagnosed with sleep disorders such as insomnia or sleep apnea are twice as likely to deliver their babies more than six weeks early than women without such a disorder. And in absolute numbers, we're talking about 5% of women with sleep issues deliver their babies at less than 34 weeks of pregnancy. A typical gestation is 40 weeks. Uh, compared to 2.9% for women without a diagnosis, without a sleep problem. This seems like something that could quite easily have been spotted earlier. It's not a very complicated thing to investigate, I wouldn't have thought. 
Yeah, it, it is odd that this study hasn't been done before. But what this is effectively is um, scientists who are mining huge quantities of historical data to try and pick out signals. And this is called uh, the preterm birth initiative. It's a 100 million US dollar effort to study prematurity. And the researchers here got loads of birth certificates, millions of birth certificates scrubbed of identifying information, but linked to hospital records. And again, they found that this sleeping disorder link just stared out at them as uh, one of the main things that then led to uh, premature babies. Now, it doesn't mean that a lack of sleep could be a, a direct cause of the early births, because th this is a, a, a correlation, but a hugely statistically significant one. So what's going on here? perhaps it could trigger other processes like inflammation that eventually result in the premature birth. This is all very uncertain, and I think the researchers are just excited to see this relationship because they just don't know what interventions might make a difference to prevent premature births. Now that we know that sleep may be a factor uh, in leading to early births, are there steps we can take to improve the quality of sleep that people have? Well, absolutely. Um, we all know that there are non-medical interventions. Uh, don't watch screens before bedtime. Make sure that your sleep environment is very dark. Uh, get the temperature right. And essentially what doctors are saying, according to Louis Mulia, who's the director of the Center for Prevention of Preterm Birth at Cincinnati Children's Hospital in Ohio, he's saying, well, I counsel women on how to have the best pregnancy outcome. And now he might start asking, do you get a good night's sleep? Which is perhaps not really a question that uh, doctors had thought to ask before. Richard, thank you for joining us. For more on both stories, head to the usual place, nature.com forward slash news. As ever, we love to hear from you. Drop us an email, podcast at nature.com with your thoughts on the show. Or if your thoughts can be squeezed into 140 characters or less, drop us a tweet at Nature Podcast. Stay tuned for next week's show for Red Supergiant Mystery. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.